God's word in Luke 16, beginning in verse 19, says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you were in your lifetime receiving your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. It is getting late on Christmas Eve on a bitterly cold night in England. But Ebenezer Scrooge sits in his counting house while freezing in the room next to him works his accountant, Bob Cratchit. Cratchit's room could be warmer, but Scrooge will not waste his money on such luxuries as coal. Every penny counts, and he counts every penny. You know the story, a Christmas story of how Ebenezer Scrooge, a miserly, grumpy man who could bless others, instead only lives for his own financial gain. Scrooge even says, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled in his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. Merry Christmas. Yet then the ghost of his old partner, Jacob Marley, visits Scrooge to warn him that his greedy, selfish ways will lead to his condemnation like his own, and he'll have to wander on earth with chains. Scrooge will have then three spirits that come in three dreams. The spirit of Christmas past, the spirit of Christmas present, and the spirit of Christmas future. And as these spirits come, the first one shows him how he ruined his past, how he's ruining his present, and then how he's ruining his future. The lives of all the people around him could be blessed, but all he says is, bah, humbug. Scrooge then wakes, a transformed man who becomes generous with his resources. He cares lavishly for his employee, those in need of charity, and he delights in his family again. Well, Scrooge has changed because one came back from the dead and warned him. And it led to his transformation. He warned him of the danger that awaited. Well, that story is funny and enjoyable. It stands in stark contrast to the story Jesus tells. For in Jesus' story, the rich man realizes his selfish ways too late. 
And rather than being able to send back warnings, he is told that adequate warnings have already been sent. In Jesus' story, we learn of three things. If you have the bulletin, you can see this on the outline on the back. First, there are two starkly different lives. Then we see two starkly different destinies. And then lastly, one clear revelation from God. But this all begins in verse 19 where Jesus says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. And Jesus is telling this parable, this story of two men. Now some have taken this to be a historical account because the man's name is Lazarus. And in John 11, there's a man named Lazarus. And so this must be the same person. However, the man in John 11 has two sisters who care for him. And so he never would have ended up poor and alone. You know, the only connection between them two with them is that they share the same name. As well, there was a certain rich man is actually the same beginning to Jesus' parable in chapter 16, verse 1. He's kind of wedding these two accounts together, so to speak. Well, the first man, he is fabulously dressed. He has clothes of purple and fine linen. Now, purple clothes only became purple because of dye. And the dyes were extremely expensive to get. So to wear purple clothes showed your wealth. Linen is often referring to their undergarments. Jesus is kind of smiling and saying, this guy is rich, even down to his underwear. Everything about him is wealthy. Not only that, he eats fabulously, not just every once in a while, every single day. He has a sumptuous meal. And then I thought that was it. But as I read, I realized there's another thing added to this because he has a gate. Well, you might be thinking he has a gate. Who cares? I have a gate. My neighbors have it. Everyone has a gate. But no, the word for gate is the word used for the entrance to a palace or some fancy temple. This man has a gate, a fancy gate that everyone goes, wow, I'd like to just live in that gate. And here he is. You know, Jesus was telling us this story today. He'd first tell of his 12-car garage with exotic cars in it. He'd then tell of the estate in which he lived. And then the many vacation homes around the world, which he traveled to on his private jet, on which he was served by his personal five-star chef for every single one of his meals. But then there's a contrast, because there's another man who's been set down, it says, verse 20. Actually, literally, he's cast down at the rich man's gate. But unlike the rich man, there's something unique that only this man has, and that is he has a name. He's Lazarus. You might not know this, but this is the only parable of Jesus in which a person is named. His name is Lazarus. What does Lazarus mean? Lazarus means God helps. Or the one whom God helps. You see, Jesus gives this man's name because he's wanting to attack the assumptions of his listeners. They want to know who God helps. Well, it must be the rich. And yet he's showing a different picture. Because at this point, Lazarus seems like the type of person God isn't helping because Lazarus lives in poverty. He probably can't even walk. I mean, he had to be set down, cast down at the gate. And not just that, he has a horrible skin condition of sores. You know, Lazarus is so poor, he longs just for the crumbs that might fall off the rich man's table. 
His lack of nourishment and poverty have made him so low that the dogs come and lick his wounds. Now in your mind, you should not see cute little Disney puppy coming up and being sweet and wonderful animal licking his wounds. That's not their type of dogs. Their dogs were wild beasts. The picture is of a man so destitute, he can't even knock the wild beast off him. They're coming and licking him, and he can't even stop it. You know, they're making him ceremonially unclean and probably infecting him. And as we'll see, Jesus tells of these two starkly different lives to challenge assumptions. The religious leaders assume that the wealth and health you have were a clear indication of God's view of you. That if you're wealthy, God loved you. If you're poor, it's because you're on God's bad side. Even today, people still think your health and wealth are a clear indication of the God's judgment of you. If you go to India and you learn from Hinduism, you learn that people are in the lower caste. Why? Because the gods judge them because of their prior life. They are looking down on them. If you're wealthy, it's because you were good in the prior life and the gods are blessing you. Your health and wealth reveal how the gods think about you. Or even today, even in our culture, sometimes people will tell some part of their life and then they go, I'm so blessed. Well, when are they saying they're blessed? Well, when they're talking about how well their life is going. They think my better health, my greater wealth is sure signs that I'm being blessed by God. Yet, though all appearances seem to show that God blesses this rich man and curses the poor, what Jesus says next would have shocked and appalled them. Because not only do they have two starkly different lives, but they have two starkly different destinies. However, these destinies are radically different than the religious leaders assumed they would be. We see this in verses 22 through 26, the second section. Jesus tells of two starkly different destinies. Because in verse 22 we read, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And we have to pause here because we need to remember that Jesus is giving a parable. In other words, this is a story to illustrate spiritual truths. And we're going to run into danger if we take every aspect of the story, or any story, and try to press into it a theological, doctrinal meaning. Nowhere else in the Bible are we told that if we die, we're taken to be with Abraham. Our goal is not to go be with Father Abraham. The idea is to go be with God himself. You know, where does this idea of going to be with Father Abraham come from? It comes from rabbinical literature. It's as though Jesus is saying, I have a point to make with you all, so I'm going to use your ideas because I have a greater issue to get at. And so here we really need to be cautious of drawing truths of the afterlife from this story alone and if we don't see them from other passages of Scripture. Now, I'm not at all saying, and we should not trust the Bible or it's not true, but I'm saying we need to treat it correctly. And we need to realize when we're being clear, being given clear doctrinal teaching and when it's a story to illustrate a greater point. Well, here, the rich man also died, but instead of being carried to Abraham's side, he's merely just buried. But he doesn't stay there, for he went to Hades where he's in deep torment. You know, Hades is the place of the dead, and often, and specifically here, it's the place where the unrighteous go and suffer. 
we see at death, there's this immediate change of your situation on earth into something permanent. And while in Hades, the man looks up and he sees Abraham with Lazarus at his side. And this is one of those places we need to ask. So is this teaching us that anyone in hell will be able to look up and communicate with people in heaven? I don't think so. I think more, it's that if Jesus is going to tell this story, he's going to use some of the ideas, and he has to in some way have them communicate. And so this is not here laying out, this is how we should think, well, yes, they're going to die and go to hell, but you can still talk to them anyways. Don't worry about it. It's not the point. We don't see that taught anywhere else. It's a way to communicate in this story. Well, in this, this story, though, the man cries out loudly to Abraham. But did you notice that once the rich man dies, He's never called the rich man again. He's only called the man or he. You know, the wealth he had only lasted on earth, and at death, he immediately became poor. And here, he calls his father Abraham. He asks, will you have Lazarus dip his finger and put it on my tongue to cool it off? As with any Bible story, you have to pay attention because sometimes there's context clues. And a big one just jumped off the page because he knew Lazarus' name. What does that mean? Well, that means he knew Lazarus on earth and he did nothing to help him. You know, he knew Lazarus, but that didn't lead him to drive away the dogs and bandage his wounds. If, as Jesus told earlier, a Samaritan is willing to be on a dangerous road from Jerusalem to Jericho and bandage a Jew's wounds, how much more should a rich Israelite care for the wounds of another Israelite? You see, as we're going to see throughout this story, the rich man's problem was not that he was rich. The rich man's problem was that he was callously indifferent. As long as he had a new outfit, another great meal, another wonderful evening, then who cares what happens to people outside the gate? As long as I'm having fun inside the gate, there's no concern about anyone outside of it. His wealth and pleasurable life do him no good now, though. And in his intense pain and suffering, he just begs for a drip of water. Now, Jesus is showing this great contrast because just as Lazarus just wanted a drop of food, now he just wants a drop of water. Abraham replies, though, in verse 25 and says, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Unlike him, Lazarus suffered in this life. Now notice something very important. Abraham didn't have some kind of twisted logic that says, well, because Lazarus now has good, his life was actually good. Abraham says Lazarus had bad things. Just because God causes all things to work together for good, and just because we should rejoice in our sufferings, rejoice in our trials, does not mean that the bad things are good. doesn't mean that trials should be delighted in, in one sense. He is very clear that this is bad. This is suffering. So when you or your loved ones have sickness, poverty, relational fallout, death, we can categorically say this is bad. 
You are suffering and we feel for you. Yes, thanks be to God that he redeems our suffering. He uses our trials. Yes, give thanks, but never act as though they aren't suffering or they're not trials. They are, in fact, that. In fact, it's the horrible nature of suffering that makes it all the more amazing that God himself would enter into it. However, while we should not call suffering blessing, we must also not forget that the suffering in this life is not the final word. For now, the situation is reversed. For Lazarus now has the good life and comfort while the rich man lives with pain. The rich man didn't heed Jesus' advice in Luke 16, 9. You got to remember, Luke 16 is one story. Jesus told a wealth, and then in Luke 16, 14, the Pharisees were mocking, and now Jesus tells another story. Look again at Luke 16, 9, because it says there, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Lazarus is not receiving him because he never cared for Lazarus. Jesus is tying this all together. He's tying it into what we read earlier, Luke 6, 25. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Abraham goes on, verse 26. He says there's a fixed and great gulf between them. If you've gone to the Grand Canyon, you've seen this massive gap between you and the other side. You can even go to the shortest point and still go, wow, that's a long way. No one is able to cross the gap. Sure, if you got a motorcycle, a ramp, and we're direct of a few brain cells, you could try and get across. But no one, even if they backed up and ran as fast as they could and hit the jump perfect, is even going to make it halfway. It's too far. Abraham says, there is no way you can get from heaven to hell. The divide is too great. Now, again, we could say, well, look, this is a parable. Maybe there is some divide. Yet, this is where we say, well, look, what does the rest of Scripture say? And we do see here that Scripture talks about this. For example, Matthew 25, 46, Jesus says, and those will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There is a set distinction that goes on for eternity, and one does not cross from the other. And what you do in this life now will matter for eternity. God has clearly determined this, and thus you must live accordingly now, for another chance will not be given. That's why it says, is it appointed for a man once to die, and then the judgments? There's no do-overs, mulligans, trying again, once. But all of this raises the question, why do these two people have different destinies? Is the issue being poor or rich? Is Lazarus in heaven because he's poor? It's just a reversal. If you suffer now, heaven later. Well, no, Lazarus is not in heaven because of his poverty, but because God helped him. You know, nothing in the Bible says that poverty is good in and of itself. Lazarus goes to heaven because, remember his name? He's the one who looked to God for help. Lazarus' gaze was not on himself, but on God, and God helped. God saved him. 
Don't believe the lie that God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who realize they can't do anything to help themselves, that we're desperately in need of God's help. So Lazarus' eyes were focused on God, but where were the rich man's eyes? Focused on himself. He saw Lazarus, but he just didn't care. You know, the application of the story is not, okay, go home, liquidate all of your investments, sell your house, and be poor. That way, you'll make it to heaven forever. Well, how do we know that? You know, am I just saying that because most of us, by worldly historical standards, we're wealthy and we want to hang on to our money? Well, notice how many people are in this story. There's three. And two of them are in heaven. And one of them is Abraham. And what does we know of Abraham? Well, Genesis 13, 2 says, Now Abram, later Abraham, was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. As well, Abraham was, as he was not lying when he said Lazarus suffered, he also was not lying when he said the rich man had a good life. It is a good thing to have wealth. Thus, the question is not, do you have wealth, but does your wealth have you? You can use your wealth for God's glory, for the good of others, or you can hoard it for yourself. That is why the rich man ended up in hell. He only cared and loved himself. Now, I don't say any of that to avoid the deep challenge Jesus is giving to every one of us, myself included. It's to avoid, though, misinterpreting it. Because Jesus does here give us a warning to those who only have wealth now. James chapter 5 gives a similar stark warning. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Your scripture could not be clearer. Living in self-indulgence rather than other generosity leads to eternal destruction. As well, Jesus promises blessings to those who are poor now and yet look to him. That rather than becoming bitter, they look and hope to God who brings change. Jesus cares for the poor. You know, it's a major part of his message. When you look at Luke 4, Luke 7, when Jesus is telling of his message, he says, I have come to declare good news to the poor, along with other things. Thus, if you are poor, are you looking to God, or are you just becoming bitter towards him? Everybody, almost any standard, most of us in here, even the poor of us, are filthy rich. All of us drove here in a car, or horseless carriage, if you like to use other words, that few could have even dreamed of 150 years ago. We sit in a centrally heated room that none of us had to chop wood for before the service. We have first world problems of running out of hot water because my shower's too long. Oh man, life's rough. Having to remember what outfit we wore last Sunday because we don't want to wear the same one again. Oh, man, I ate too much. Now I'm going to have to take a nap. Oh, man, my Wi-Fi is so slow. The show's glitchy. This is horrible. Oh, man, that vacation, it was so hard. Can we get another vacation? 
oh man, Christmas is so hard. All my friends have everything they want, so I have to think of something for them to buy. Those are first world problems that if anyone throughout history had had, they'd be like, you are so wealthy. You have so much you can't even tell someone what you need for Christmas? (laughs) Why do you not understand how wealthy you are? Now we could sit here and from that all get out the whips. Oh, we're wealthy. Oh man, we're horrible people. Lash ourselves. But that's not the point. It's not wrong to have wealth. But it is wrong if the wealth has you. We should use our privileged position and our wealthy status to bless others. In our wealthy culture, that might not mean giving people money. It might mean that still, but it might mean your willingness to give up your time. To go sit with an elderly person. To go watch someone's children. To ask your coworker, how are you really doing? And give them the time to listen. You know, people are at the gates of our lives starving for relationships and people who care. And often we're more concerned, do I have enough time to binge on the rest of this season tonight or do I need to wait till tomorrow? <sighs> Use Whatever your wealth is, it might not be time. You might be wealthy in money and you have no time. Well, then use whatever wealth God has given you to bless those who don't have it. And yet we're also often too busy scrolling through our social media to see the social outcast. And so this is going to get different, look, get played out differently for every one of us because we all have different circumstances in life. However, let me give three warnings how sometimes people avoid this. First, we sometimes justify our lack of generosity by thinking, well, I will gladly help anyone in need. However, there's just not anyone around me who needs help. Well, we have to be careful that our eyes are open to the world around us. One of the reasons we may not know of anyone in need is because we might have specifically chosen to live in a neighborhood where no one is in need. Of course no one's in need. You moved into a nice neighborhood. You know, there are even some people who, no offense here, just hear me out. There are some people, we'll call those horrible people, I never go to Walmart. Oh, those people are there. I don't know which side of the spectrum you are. Maybe you're a Walmart goer, or maybe you're a Walmart loather. I don't know. But the point is, some people avoid certain classes of people. They don't want anything to do with them. Now, in regards to our neighborhoods, that's not necessarily sinister. Except often when people are choosing their neighborhoods, the number one thing they think of is safety for my children. And yet maybe from Jesus' story, we should consider one of the greatest dangers for our children is a wealthy, self-consumed, living-for-myself-only mindset. Maybe, you have to judge for yourself, maybe the most dangerous neighborhood for you might be the wealthiest neighborhood you could live in. Maybe that will get your children's hearts wrapped up in things in themselves. Maybe living in a poor neighborhood where they see some of the horrors of life might be the safest place for them. Now, you have to use wisdom. I'm not saying these neighborhoods are immoral to live in. I'm not saying the richest neighborhood is wrong to live in. You can be a godly person and be rich or be poor. And yet Jesus' teaching is calling us into question the way we live. Are we living a wealthy, self-centered, indulgent life? 
Yeah, but as Americans, we have to realize how we constantly are trying to structure our lives to minimize annoyance. You know, there's whole communities where you can live and children can't live there. Oh, no brats running around, knocking over my trash can, running their bikes through the streets so I don't have to watch out for them. Oh, and we don't want any of those homeless people. We don't want any people like Lazarus here. We want everything to be nice. And Jesus is saying, be careful what you're living for. Again, I'm not condemning all age-segregated neighborhoods. But why do I want to live there, perhaps? Why do I want everything to be perfect so I can live inside my gate? Now, you might not live in an isolated community, but you can still live an isolated life. Yes, you get up, you go to school, you go to work, you go everywhere, but in reality, you're not opening up to anyone. You're there, but you're not willing to talk or be open and care about others. Jesus is calling us to open our lives and eyes to care for others. 1 John 3, 16-18 says, By this we know love, that he lay down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Second thing, and much shorter, that we have to watch out for, that we can use to excuse ourselves, is to buy the lie that, oh, I would be generous, but I, I just don't have that much. Jesus already talked about this. Again, remember, this is all going together in Luke 16, because Luke 16, he says in verse 10, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. Use what you have now. Whatever time you have, whatever money you have, whatever you have now, be faithful with it. Did you notice that the rich man's sin is actually nothing he did? He didn't do a single thing. And that's the problem. You can sin by doing nothing. Sins of omission. By failing to do the good that's in your hands and you refuse to do it. Well, third, living as Jesus calls us to, we need to realize, means more than getting involved in service projects. Because we can avoid this by, oh yes, I see what Jesus is saying. Fourth Saturday every month, check, I'm at the homeless shelter. Now, if you go to the homeless shelter the fourth time, fourth Saturday every month, great, please don't stop. That's a great way to serve. However, if your response to this is to add just a couple checklists on your life and your life doesn't change anywhere else, we're not fully living what Jesus is calling to. Because this is not a checklist event. This is a lifestyle that you can't just show up to, but that you have to live out every day living for others and not just to yourself. Thus, if you drove away today and said, oh, there's a homeless person, pull out your wallet and just throw all your money at him. Whew. Took care of Luke 16, 19 to 31. It's not what Jesus is calling you to. You can give all your money away and still not have love. You might be thinking, whoa, but I didn't know any of this. I didn't know it was a sin to not be doing things. I thought you only sinned when you did bad things. I, how can I know that? Well, Jesus now attacks this because he says, yes, there actually has been one clear revelation from God the whole time. We see that lastly in verses 27 through 31. God's one clear revelation. 
Because the rich man in verse 27, he now realizes his horrible and permanent situation. And so he says to Father Abraham, will you send Lazarus to go to my father's house so that he can warn them of this place of torment? Now this man actually becomes a witness to us because unlike him, your fate is not yet sealed. At this point, you can still repent and seek God. And yet we have to pause for a minute because isn't what Jesus is saying here like fear-mongering? Isn't this like the basis of like religious ideas when you start talking about hell and motivating people to change? And I mean, haven't we kind of evolved beyond such horrible ideas to a God of love and all of these things? Well, let me ask a separate question. The other ships who radioed into the Titanic and said, icebergs are in the area. Were they being unloving and cruel? Well, that's what the radio operator for the Titanic thought. He berated them and said, get off the line. I have personal messages I'm sending out. You other ships, you're killjoys. All you going around saying icebergs in the area. Come on, we want to be sending messages. Life needs to be fun. You're only fear-mongering if what you're saying is not true. But if what you're saying is true, you're not being a fear-monger. You're being loving and kind. And since Jesus is telling of the truth, he's being loving and kind to say it. For a doctor to tepidly say, well, um, excuse me, no offense intended here, but, um, well, if you don't have surgery, you're going to die. But don't, no, no, don't be, don't worry, don't worry. I'm just letting you know. just want to be friends. You're going to die, but it's not a big deal. Just had to let you know somehow that this is the thing out here. But, hey, you want to go have some cake? Like, we can still be friends, right? No, a loving doctor has to say, you need surgery now because if you wait a week, you may not be here. That's not fear-mongering if it's true. And when the Bible says these things, it's not saying it to manipulate you or twist you. It's saying this is reality and we're trying to lovingly tell you so you can know how to respond before it's too late. We see this even in verse 14 because remember the greater context, the Pharisees, Jesus says, who were lovers of money. Jesus is clear. You cannot both love God and money. He knows their situation in love for them Jesus tells them and us this story and yet Abraham denies this request too because he tells the man look your brothers your family they have Moses and the prophets Jesus story here is not only showing us how to live with our money and be generous it's also illustrating that the Old Testament is a righteous standard we saw that last time verse 17 where Jesus says but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Jesus is showing, look, they have the law. That's enough. It's still a standard that could guide them. Well, what did the Old Testament say? Well, the Old Testament called for every third year that the poor, sorry, the people were to give a tenth, and it was to be stored up in a storehouse, and it would go to the Levites, the poor, the widows, the orphans, and the sojourners. It called for every seventh year to release all debts. Deuteronomy 5, sorry, 15, 11 says, You shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. 
Proverbs 19.17 declares, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Proverbs 21.13 also says, Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call and not be heard. And we could go on. We could look at other commands. We could look at rebukes of the Israelites because they didn't care for the poor and God's promises of blessings for those who do care. And yet the rich man says to this basically, "Uh, that's not enough, Father Abraham. They need more. That's not enough. Because look, if someone will go back from the dead, then that's enough. You know, they need a vision. They need a ghost. They need an experience. They need a sign. However, Abraham replies, if they won't, Listen to Moses and the prophets. Neither if someone rises from the dead will they be persuaded. God's word is clear. Yes, at times we should explain it and clarify it. Even this week as I was talking to a man, I was reminded that his testimony of coming to Christ was of reading a pamphlet that talked about the historical reliability of the Gospels. We should give good evidences to believe. And yet we have to also remember that it's God's word that transforms lives, not our experiences or our great arguments. The reality is that those who don't want to believe, you can give them all the signs they want and they won't believe. However, for those inclined to believe, signs are confirmation of their belief. That's why Jesus' resurrection has been a great evidence for many people. And yet for those who don't want to believe, they just write it off. Well, how do we know that? Well, we even saw that Lazarus, not this Lazarus, but the Lazarus in John 11 when Jesus brought him back from the dead. Many Jews believe, but what do the Pharisees say? John 11:53. So from that day on, the Pharisees made plans to put him to death. You would think they just saw a man who was dead three days, brought back to life. We, why? we don't know who this guy is. We still have questions, but... He is someone from God. We need to listen. No. They put him, they wanted to put him to death. Or when Jesus rose from the dead, Matthew 27, 13, it says, they said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away. You know, the problem is not a lack of clarity in God's revelation, but their lack of willingness to submit to it. Some people just don't want to believe, and so they won't. Now again, we must be wise. We should use arguments at times, but it is God and his word that brings faith. So what if you could have the verdict of your life known before you died? You know, Alfred Noble had this strange experience. I'm not sure if you know this story, but his brother died and newspapers accidentally mistook it for his death. And so they wrote his obituary and on the headline of almost all of them said, The merchant of death has died. He was described as a man who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before. You see, Alfred Noble was a Swedish chemist. He's the man who invented dynamite and other explosives. Now, he had planned for these to be used for blowing through mountains so he can put railroads through. And yet his dynamite had also been sold to people using it in war. And so he was called the merchant of death. And as he read these obituaries, he realized, whoa, this is not what I want my legacy to be. The obituaries changed him. And for the rest of his life, he used his fortunes to 
reward people who did things for other people. You may even noted it by his name because that is why we now have the Nobel Peace Prize. Because of him giving his money and creating, how can we do good for others? However, we don't have ghosts of Christmas past. We don't have ghosts coming from the dead. Or we don't have the obituaries that wrongly presumed our death and told us how we should have lived. But we have something much better than any of those. We have God's word. That's what Jesus is saying is, you have God's word. And that's better than someone coming back. Because it shows the life that honors God and leads to everlasting life. So search his word. Be brutally honest with yourself. Let the mirror of it shine and show you what you're really like. You know, today, today, Jesus shows us that honoring God means looking to him and having open-eyed generosity to those around us. Let me close with these words from James 1. So may we be doers of the word and not hearers only. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Let's pray. Oh Lord, may we see you, and as we see you, may we be this generous, open-eyed person. May we delight to be generous with our time, our money, our talents, for your glory and for the good of those around us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.